Hey, everybody. A quick note before the show. I have just finished reading, I mean, literally about an hour ago, I have just finished reading a new novel by former Elder Sign guest host, Sun Yi Dean, and I really love this book, and I think that you will too, so I want to tell you a little bit about it. The book is called The Book Eaters, and, uh, well, is exactly what it says on the box there. It is about people who eat books. The story is set in the real world, our world, but the speculative element is that there is a hidden society, a secret society of people who look like humans, but aren't. And the fact that they consume books instead of pizza is really just one part of what makes them different from the rest of us. And getting a chance to explore this really evocative, really imaginative world that Dean has constructed, this was a huge part of the fun for me. Thematically, the book is an awesome exploration of the fairy tales that we give to children, and then also the fantasy literature that has grown out of that fairy tale tradition. And let me read a, a few lines to you, just to give you a taste, a little tease. They were princesses, of a kind, and this was how princesses lived. Safe in towers, married to men who competed for them, one way or another. Even in the happiest fairy tales, princesses did not usually have much choice. They were prizes to be won or given away, and there was no other context in which she could understand life. And if that passage grips you the way that it gripped me, I hope you'll do yourself a favor and pick up a copy of The Book Eaters by Sonia Dean. To make that easy for you, I have put a link in the show notes, but of course, you'll also be able to find this book at your local shop. Again, that is The Book Eaters by Sonia Dean. Welcome back to Elder Side, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are going to be talking about the novella Niemenswasser by Robert Aikman. This was originally published in 1975. And because this is a novella, that just means it's longer than a short story. Uh, we're going to do two episodes on this. It'll be a two-parter. And this episode is going to be the recap. This story was nominated to us by one of our Patreon supporters. This is awesome. This gets us reading Robert Aikman. We have this great collection called Cold Hand in Mind that we found this story in. So thank you so much to our Patreon supporter who nominated this story. It's fantastic. Uh, there's a lot going on here. I'm not really all that familiar with Robert Aikman. This was a great introduction to him as a writer for me. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm deeply appreciative. I can't wait till we get into the story. Uh, it takes place in the 19th century. I guess that's the, the best way to describe, <laughs> I guess, the context of the story. Uh, but the details I'll leave to you, Glenn. So let's just get right into the recap. Shortly after 3 a.m., when the September air was thinly strewn with drizzle, the young prince, Albrecht von Allendorf, known as Elmo to his associates because of the fire which, to them, emanated from him, entered the Tiergarten from the Liechtenstein Alley, leaping over the locked gate, then found his way to the shore of the big lake to his left, and there, in the total darkness, made to shoot himself. So that is the opening sentence of Niemenswasser, and I, I have to say just, wow, what a crazy opening. This is one long sentence with 
eight commas and two semicolons, and it goes on for seven lines in this Faber and Faber edition that we're using. And I realize that sounds a bit snarky. Sounds like maybe I'm I'm being critical here, but I, I assure you that I am I am not. I, I think this is some absolutely gorgeous writing. This paragraph, this sentence tells us everything we need to know to start this story. And it's also got an awesome hook. I mean, I think this is this is how you do it. Yeah. What's also crazy is that this is a relatively easy sentence to parse compared to some others <laughs> in the story. I really wanted to get out my old linguistics textbook with this story and like reteach myself sentence diagramming uh, because I bet I'd have a really good time diagramming a bunch of the sentences in Neiman's Wasser. I think you know, more importantly, though, what Aikman is doing here is imitating that late 19th and early 20th century prose style, uh, particularly like the styles you'd find in writers like Marcel Proust and Thomas Mann. Uh, this story, by the way, has a real Thomas Mann-like flair to it. For me, that was all but confirmed by the time I got to the end of it. I mean, yeah, the story opens with this this hook of this character is suicidal. He's going to shoot himself. And it actually gets even more dire than that as the story goes on. And uh, yeah, I mean, that feels very much like a Thomas Mann story for right, sure. Right. And it's all about romantic love. And we're going to comment on this, or I am, uh, throughout the, the recap episode. And, and we'll be getting into some of this in our discussion, but I want to point out a few of the other details that that may not have come to light or been obvious um, right away from this paragraph. We're in Germany. Uh, that seems obvious because the title of the story is Niemann's Wasser, and that means something like no man's water. Uh, that'll be important later. Elmo refers to St. Elmo, also known as Erasmus of Formia. He was a saint. Uh, he had a few run-ins with fire in his time, including, you know, being lit on fire. But I think that what's important here is that St. Elmo is the patron saint of sailors and St. Elmo's fire is, you know, in this sense of the story, in this sense of it being used to describe some sort of like vim and vigor inherent to our protagonist and, and what he can draw out of others. But as it relates to sailors, St. Elmo's fire is a coronal projection of plasma that you sometimes see at the top of a ship's mast, uh, or really anything that can generate an electrical field. And it can indicate that lightning is about to strike. As I said, I don't think that's what Aikman is <laughs> really interested in, in using the name Elmo here. I think he's more interested in that, that sense of life uh, that this protagonist has. And so immediately we're set up with this ironic contrast between the protagonist's uh, nickname given to him and his action that he plans on taking that opens the story, this, this uh, suicidal ideation. Yeah, I guess that's one reading of this uh, this literary reference, Brandon. I th I thought this had more to do with the uh, Brat Pack film, St. Elmo's Fire, <laughs> starring Emilio Estevez and Rob Lowe, among I, others. I had but, to uh, delete all of my Man in Motion references uh, from <laughs> from my from my comments here because I thought they'd be too obscure. But now they're back on the table. We'll see how many we can make. 
right listeners at home can play uh, some sort of game at uh, how many <laughs> how many Saint Elmo's Fire references we will we will make <laughs> during the course of the two episodes we're talking about this story. But yeah, let's get back into the the story in question here. And speaking of question, I guess really the question is the thing that we want to know that gets us to read the next paragraph is why does Prince Elmo von Ellendorf want to shoot himself? Why does he want to take his own life? It is all because of a bad breakup that he's just had with his lover, Elvira Schwalbe. And here, in fact, we actually get a paragraph of the story from her perspective rather than Elmo's. And in this paragraph, we see her feeling shocked at Elmo's anger when she broke up with him. But then we also see her feeling better that the relationship is over. And we even see her celebrating the next morning with a big breakfast and the uh, ritual tossing of the keys to their love nest into the river spree. But Elmo is really the character that we are interested in. He is the protagonist of this story. And Aikman uh, does something really surprising here, which is to interrupt Elmo's suicide attempt at the Tear Garden with seven pages of backstory about Elmo and his family. And I think this is a good place to elaborate a little bit more on the the setting, the historical context of this that you brought up at the top of the show, Brandon. Uh, of course, right at this particular moment, the setting is Berlin, the famous Tiergarten in Berlin. We are going to now start to range over Western Germany a bit. And yeah, this story is taking place in the late 19th century. It is at some point after the establishment of the German Empire, which happened in 1871. Uh, The German Empire is dominated by Prussia. Uh, When Germany was created in 1871, the Prussian king became the German emperor. But nonetheless, and I think something we often lose sight of when we are thinking about the late 19th and early 20th century German experience, Germany nonetheless did consist of 26 states, uh, most of them with their own hereditary rulers and nobility or aristocracy. And Aikman here is presenting Elmo's family as the hereditary rulers of a mid-sized German state around 1880 or so, uh, though I do want to be clear that Aikman has made up this family and made up this uh, this state that they rule over. He's kind of envisioning uh, a 27th German state that no one has ever heard of here. But all right, let's let's uh, let's get to the details that matter for Elmo. He is the youngest of five brothers, and so there is very little chance that he is ever going to be called on to rule, to inherit the, the leadership of this state. His brothers are all army officers, and they take turns tending to their aging father, uh, which also then is conditioning them to, to rule. They're, they're learning. They're, it's a kind of apprenticeship for them. Elmo also is in the army, but this is the type of 19th century army in which aristocrats aren't actually expected to really be around that much, and so he isn't, and we're going to have more on that later. But it was during one of his stays with his regiment in Berlin that he met Elvira, and Elvira is a dancer in a small opera house. One more note before we take a pause here is that Elmo's mother died when he was a child, and he barely remembers her. But many of the maternal duties of the family were taken over by a cousin. This is the Countess Sophie Anna, and uh, this is someone on whom young Elmo had a uh, serious business crush. So, all right, we've still got some backstory that we're going to need before we continue with the the story that Aikman began telling and then interrupted. But let's pause here and uh, take stock of things, Brandon. Yeah, I want to start by talking about Elmo's crush on Sophie Anna. 
this crush, I think, was a little more than a crush. I mean, it reached the level of Elmo sneaking into Sophiana's room while she was not there and sniffing her clothes and underclothes. And and because no one really watched Elmo, no one could tell him no or how to deal with romantic indifference or unrequited love. I mean, I'm not really sure whose job that is in life, but at some point, someone has to take you out for a stiff drink and tell you to like chill out or get over <laughs> it or something. Elmo never had anyone like that. And so he's really bad, even from childhood, in dealing with his romantic emotions and romantic entanglements. And Aikman wants us to think that this bit about Elmo being bad at this sort of thing goes back to childhood. He's also got a crush on the mother figure. And there's no one around him to point out that that's a taboo, right? This is all 19th century Freudian business here caught up in, you know, something you'd see in the literary movement of modernism. And I think Aikman is having a bit of fun with these ideas and, and a couple other literary movements, as we'll see in the story as well. But I really love the way that Elvira is shown to us to be kind of maybe frivolous or capricious in some ways. You get this in a lot of cavalier poetry uh, from the 18th century. You know, she wakes up, she eats extra cake, and then she feels great. I think we've actually probably all had breakups like that at one time or another, <laughs> where we feel like uh, enough weight has come off us from the end of the relationship that we can have extra cake for breakfast. Yeah, I guess if this were a contemporary story, or really, I think even something just set from at least the 1980s on, that uh, it would be ice cream, right? This would be the eat a pint of ice cream, <laughs> right. and then you're over the breakup. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but I want to point out also some of the style choices that Aikman is making here. And we see this, you know, Glenn, you pointed this out, even in the second paragraph of the story. And, and that's this... Uh, perspective shift or point of view shift that occurs in the middle of the paragraph. So Neiman Wasser begins with a close third person perspective, but then by the second paragraph, the perspective shifts to Elvira briefly, and then it zooms way out to give us the complete family history. Even though this zooming out, this family history is nominally focused on Elmo and his role in the family and his relationship to the family properties and the father and things like that. What Aikman is doing here uh, is relying on tropes that you'd see in especially 19th century serialized novels. And he's doing it all in the kind of course of this very brief novella. So Aikman is really playing up these uh, 19th century tropes here. None of these perspective shifts would certainly fly today if you were workshopping this story someplace. But I do think you're right, Brandon, that this gets us in the mindset of the actual setting of the story, just the the storytelling technique. I think even also the the complex sentence structure that requires actual diagramming and so on <laughs> is, is meant to be kind of a pastiche, although it never, ever feels like pastiche. And you know, this also goes hand in hand too with what we're getting of Elmo's character, right? I mean, uh, what goes on uh, in addition to nobody watching him because look, he's the youngest of of five in the household of a widower who who also happens to be the ruler of uh, one of these states of Germany and so on. Uh, we also see that 
Elmo, because he is the youngest child, knowing, and as everyone does, that he's never going to be called on to rule, he's also left to his own devices. And even his military service and other sorts of of public-facing duties that he might have aren't taken very seriously by him or by anyone else. And so he's just left to his own devices to read way too much poetry, way too much romantic poetry, and and listen to romantic music, right? We know he's going to the opera houses and so on. And so he has developed, he has taken all of the, the intense emotionality and the intense dramatic emotionality, maybe we should say, of romantic literature and romantic music into the way that he is living his life as a 20-something out in the world. I, I, I've come to realize the older that I get uh, and looking at different families, especially, you know, larger families with four plus kids and things like that. Uh, and you really see it when the kids all grow up that the youngest child is hardly ever raised by parents. They're raised by the family dynamic, right? And so you get that sense here with Elmo that even, I mean, explicitly he's... Uh, attended to maybe at times by this older cousin that he has a crush on, has almost no relationship with his father, has very little relationship with his brothers, is, as you pointed out, left to his own devices, and so is essentially raised by these unspoken expectations that form the family norms. And, you know, that does then leave Elmo way too much leisure time to get into trouble with with women. Yeah, though I think that once he gets over this breakup, and if he survives the horror thing that we we promise we're getting to eventually, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he's just going to start a podcast talking about books with uh, with a friend. Maybe yeah. we'll even meet that friend in this story. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Who can say? Okay, well, let's get some more backstory at this point. So although the family lives in Berlin and their lives really centered there, the family patrimony is really in Western Germany on the shore of Lake Constance. And of course, this is typical of 19th century Europe, but in the case of the von Allendorfs, they never visit the patrimony really at all. And this is because of something that happened when Elmo's father visited this family patrimony when he himself was a child. It is something that nobody knows about, or at least something that nobody talks about. And so Elmo's generation for sure doesn't know any of the specifics of what happened. But Elmo has felt drawn to this place, and he actually has frequently visited, and he has tried to do so incognito whenever possible. He just loves the beauty of the place, as as well as the escape from his family. Elmo has a friend named Victor, whose father commands the guards in one of the non-Prussian kingdoms of Germany. And the two of them, Victor and Elmo, that is, uh, used to go boating on Lake Constance at night. And one night, when Elmo is rowing, Victor drags his hand in the water, and uh, something bites most of that hand off. Now, this is serious business, and Victor resigns from the army and just stays hanging around Lake Constance, uh, spending most days just staring out over the lake. And at this point, he and Elmo have a falling out. And Elmo consults a doctor on Victor's behalf, and this doctor tells him that whatever bit Victor's hand must have infected Victor with some kind of bacteria that is making him a shell of his former self. Uh, There is, of course, also a lot of speculation about what exactly did the biting. The locals all claim that there has always been a monster in the lake and that Charlemagne saw it and so did Paracelsus, but these, of course, are just folk tales. 
Others speculate that it must be uh, some kind of freshwater shark. And from now on, the local children are forbidden from entering the water. And that is really the end of it. Uh, This speculation and concern for Victor dies down very quickly. And this is when Elmo returns to Berlin. And it's once he's returned to Berlin following this incident with the freshwater shark or whatever, whatever (laughs) this is, that uh, Elmo meets uh, Elvira. Right. So the timeline is something like this. Elmo returns to Berlin after realizing he can't do anything for Victor. And Victor has turned into some kind of specter that haunts the winter shores of the Bowdoin Sea. And then after returning to Berlin, Elmo meets Elvira, as you pointed out, Glenn. And Elvira helps Elmo more because of his romantic obsession than for any other reason. Uh, Anything that Elvira does, Elvira helps Elmo forget about Victor, basically. And, you know, 99 other problems that he may have had before meeting her. And Elmo does fall in love with Elvira, and they're together for years, but they could never marry because they occupy different social stations in society, different classes. And Elmo had this naive belief, I I, I suppose because he was surrounded by men who maintained mistresses, that he and Elvira could make it work forever. But I get the sense in reading this uh, section here that Elvira must have told Elmo at some point that she wanted more or nothing. And that was the end of the relationship. You know, we met her on page one of the story and she is emotionally paralyzed for a few hours after their breakup, which suggests to me that she and Elmo had just this big doozy of a fight. And then it didn't take her long to realize that it was all for the best. But Elmo's emotional paralysis kind of lasts for a, a, a lot longer. I think that this is probably right about what she wanted out of the relationship or or what it is that she was expressing that then led to this this breakup. Because I think we can clearly see from the context of this that this was not uh, premeditated, that the breakup happens out of some other conversation that they're having. And we can just envision that from Elvira's perspective, Elmo is fifth in, in line here that you know he's he's not going to rule that if anyone can break the rules that you know dictate that as an aristocrat uh you can you know have as many lovers as you want but you can only make babies with your cousin right that like right. those rules don't have to apply to him that he can he could break those rules and they could figure something out because he you know he would still have his army career she's working you know they they could make this work so you can see from her perspective where yeah she might she might request more Yeah, and all all of this is kind of pretty normal 19th century literary stuff dressed up in beautiful and ornate prose. Uh, And Aikman then is able, you know, through this prose, he's able to slide some stuff by us in the section that uh, you've just recapped, Glenn. One of the things that he slides by us, I think, is some information about Victor. As I just mentioned, Victor haunts the shores of the Bowdoin Sea or Lake Constance. And we're told here that his movements inspire, according to the narrator, the work of a poetess. I've done some research here. I believe that Aikman is talking about Annette von Drost Hulshoff, uh, but she died in 1848. And, you know, for reasons that we've kind of already brought up and that we'll see later, that doesn't really work for the timing of this story. But I'm not sure that there's another good candidate for this 
type of poetess that Aikman describes here. There is more about Victor, too, that I want to point out here, namely uh, that he would sometimes dress as a woman when he went on boat trips with Elmo so as to enhance the experience of the boat trip for Elmo rather than cause a diminishment, which many of Elmo's boating companions, I suppose, did diminish his enjoyment of uh, the boatancy. And it was really this moment in the story that gave me strong Thomas Mann vibes. It's this uh, flirtation with either homosexuality or homosexual attraction um, that you find in a lot of Mann stories as well. But we see that Elmo is not attracted to Victor as such. Uh, Rather, Aikman tells us that Elmo feels that he has gained a sister in Victor in these moments. But I wonder if this story were told from Victor's perspective, if we'd have Victor feel as though Elmo were like a brother. I suspect that we wouldn't feel that Victor views Elmo like a brother. And so I think in our discussion episode, we are going to have to look at the relationship of the bite that Victor gets, the losing of the hand, and a kind of uh, different and unrequited love. I suspect Victor is a little bit in love with, with Elmo. Yeah, I think that's right. And I'm, I'm looking forward to unpacking that. And just the way that Aikman tells this story, just even at this point, we haven't, well, I guess we've gotten a taste of the the horror element here. I mean, we've had someone lose a hand from something mysterious in the middle of this lake at this point. But, you know, what we're really, but, but even just, you know, but even as we're not very far into this story, I guess is what I'm trying to say, you know, we've had these digressions into bits of story, either from another character's perspective or tidbits of story where we kind of long to see the story from another character's perspective. And this just feels to me, and even though this is a fairly long story, I, I feel like this could have been converted into a novel with, uh, you know, sort of a multiple uh, or a large cast of characters, each with their own point of view. And I, I kind of yearn for that story, although the story as we get it is an absolute masterpiece. It is. It's such a good story. And and you're right. I, I sat reading this thinking, I wish this were a novel. I w- and, then, and then I bought a Thomas Mann novel to fill the gap. So <laughs> it actually ended up being okay. Um, there's one more thing I want to talk about here, and it's this. It's it's the way that Aikman really leans into romance, not just the, the type of romantic love and unrequited, unrequited and futile love that we are seeing displayed either by Elmo or towards Elmo uh, in this story, but we're also getting serious business romantic descriptions of Bodensi or Lake Constance. And I mean romantic here, both in a sense that, you know, this passage I want to read here is interested in the sublime or an experience of awe. We get, you know, the word Alps thrown in here, which is a classic romantic uh, expression of the sublime, uh, of the sublimity of nature. Uh, but also this sets up a really complex desire for companionship that we just saw between Victor and Elmo. So I'm going to read this this passage here. Uh, if you have this story in cold hand in mind, this is on page 73. If, when the moon is shining and near full, you skull over, alone, or with some single, quietly beloved and beautiful person from Constance, past the Stad Peninsula with its lighthouse to Meersburg, 
You will experience a peace and acceptance of all things that the wider oceans of the world cannot offer. For some of the time, the scale seems to be maritime, with land at such an hour almost out of sight, even beneath the moon. But all the while, you are conscious that the smooth and silky water is not saline, but the current of the great Rhine, newly released from the Alps. And, of course, there is the clear air. The Bowdoin Sea being set at 400 meters above the restless sea. Every ripple is poetry, and every zephyr a tender release. It's just absolutely gorgeous passage that just screams uh, pastiche from the Romantic era. Yeah, I mean, this actually could just be like a, a description of what it's like to listen to Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata or, you know, the opening movement, the famous opening movement of Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, which, uh, although that is actually famously not the name or any name that, that Beethoven gave it, it comes actually from a, a critic who said that uh, the music or that first movement in particular reminded him of seeing the light of the moon on an alpine lake in Switzerland, right? And this is, although this is <laughs> Germany, uh, Lake Constance does actually also border Switzerland and Austria. This will actually become important later when we learn about this whole idea of no man's water. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this feels kind of like even a pastiche of of that critic's review of, of Beethoven's <laughs> uh, famous uh, Moonlight Sonata there. And yeah, this is just beautiful, beautiful writing. I mean, we get all of the senses at play here. But I think most importantly, where this really digs then into that romantic soul is that at least half of this description is is just about what it feels like to be there emotionally or psychologically, right? It's not just about what it looks like and sounds like and and smells like and so on. It is about the mood in your soul, in your psyche, as you are surrounded by this landscape. It's uh, it's so awesome. Right. And that what's so expressive about this passage in particular and what, what reminds us so much of romanticism is that the experience that these characters have or that Aikman is trying to evoke in us is one of awe. And that is a core ethos in Romantic era literature. All right. Well, it is time now to leave this backstory behind us and actually return to the present, which uh, we haven't talked about in, I don't know, 25 minutes or so, I think at this point, Brandon. (laughs) So... Elmo is by the lake in the Tiergarten Park in Berlin, and as we left him, he is going to kill himself. He's going to shoot himself because Elvira has ended their relationship. He has a a small pistol with which he intends to shoot himself. Uh, This was a gift that he received from Sophie Anna, who is the woman who became the matriarch of his family following his mother's death and uh, uh, upon whom he had some unrequited love. But Elmo does not do it. He does not shoot himself here. He's overcome by some kind of paralysis, and that might be figurative, it might be literal, uh, it might be because of the shock of the breakup, or maybe it's because of the quality of the darkness here in the park. But in any case, he finds that he simply cannot do it. And now, there is a strange, faint light on the lake. Also, there is a woman there, and, uh, She's floating above the lake, or maybe in it, but she is certainly not of the lake. And uh, let me quote the text here. She was a woman more beautiful than any man could have conceived or imagined as possible. She was white and naked, and she had large eyes, like the eyes of the Blessed Virgin, and a wide red mouth, 
Elmo is certain that he is dreaming, and while he is realizing this, realizing that he has dozed off and is dreaming in some way, the pistol in his hand goes off. Now, he's fine, uh, but who knows where the bullet went. But the woman is gone, and Elmo has lost his chance to shoot himself because this tiny pistol only holds one bullet. Elmo here curses the pistol, and he flings it into the lake, and then he goes home. And we get another aside here from someone else's perspective. This is quite interesting, I think. The park superintendent finds the pistol in the lake not much later. I mean, it's almost dawn at this point. And this superintendent sees that it has the Countess Sophie Anna's name on it. And so he returns it to her. We then switch to Sophie Anna's perspective. And we learn that this upset her, right? Getting the pistol and realizing that Elmo has not taken care of it, this upsets her. And this, we are told, was the moment when Elmo lost any chance of a romance with her. And she sent him some kind of letter about this, but it's a letter that he never received because Elmo decided not to stay in Berlin. And that is where we're going to pick up in just a moment. Right. I mean, apart from this uh, letter that Elmo doesn't receive, this this business at the lake really, again, demonstrates Aikman's interest in the experience of the sublime to us. Not only do we have this emotional paralysis that is, as you pointed out, Glenn, you know, either the result of heartbreak. It's the same thing we saw happen to Elvira before she cured her heartbreak with cakes and coffee. But then we have this arresting vision of daybreak over the lake that that is tied to I, the lady of the lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering Samite. Except there's no Excalibur here, and the lady's not of the lake, and our narrator loses his weapon in this moment. So it's just a, a very strange moment. It's haunting. It's ethereal. We have this woman maybe representing the lake in some way. We have daybreak that causes a, I don't know, kind of enchantment over Elmo. And all of this is, you know, fairy tale stuff, uh, King Arthur stuff, maybe. But also it is really romantic in this sense of uh, the quality of light affecting the vision of the soul in nature. And all of this is, is part of Aikman's game in this story. But it's not just romanticism that Aikman has on his mind here. By the time we've got to this point in the story, realize that we're essentially reading a story about a man who is romantically rejected and is now trying to kill himself. And this is all tropes that you can find in a Sturm und Drang narrative as well. Sturm und Drang is a German period of literature. It's all about stormy emotions surrounding love and youthful angst. One of the core novels in this period is called The Sorrows of Young Werther by Goethe. And uh, this is a novel also like this story that is about love and suicide. Now, I'll note here that Sturm und Drang is primarily an 18th century movement. It's a precursor to Romanticism. And so it had a major impact on Romanticism, which is late 18th and 19th century literature. But Aikman is giving us, I think, a lot to work with here in terms of his conception and construction of the story. He's really relying on in a pastiche mode, not just Romanticism, but 
prior to Romanticism, Sturm und Drang, and then also taking cues from the 19th century serialized story as evidenced once again by this aside or, or mini episode about Sophiana to tell the tale. So I guess pastiche is the word we really need to keep in mind as we think about what Aikman is doing to tell the story or how he's telling the story. Because when we get to the discussion, we're going to have to put all of this in a broader genre umbrella, and then also think about where the story is leading to in terms of um, its references to modernism. I do hope that uh, when we do that, Brandon, we get to spend some time uh, tugging on the thread that you uh, you left dangling there about uh, watery tarts throwing swords at people. <laughs> <laughs> I, we're going to have to talk about the lady not of the lake, but uh, I, I don't know quite what we're going to do with her. It's a very strange image, I think. All right. So Elmo... At this point, he leaves Berlin and he heads back to the ancestral family castle by Lake Constance after what it turns out has been an absence of eight years. For a year, he confines himself to the poorly maintained castle and its immediate grounds, mostly spending a lot of time in the library. And this library is awesome. Uh, the books are falling apart, but it has books on magic, which have uh, printed text and diagrams on only about half the pages so that the other pages, these blank pages, can serve as space for the user's own notes. But there are no notes in, in any of them. But Elmo also spends a lot of time in the empty rooms of the upper reaches of the castle because he likes to look out the windows at the lake. And this is all kind of happening as a, a montage. And so when we zoom back into some more immediate narration. It has been more than a year. And what's happening when we zoom back in here is that Elmo sees something out one of these windows, something out there on the lake, and he summons one of his servants uh, to talk about it. It is a boat floating far out in the water, and Elmo wants some of the staff to go out and get it, uh, to bring it back for some purpose that he's not clear about, or at least, you know, doesn't tell us about. But the servant, uh, his name is Jürgen, uh, Jürgen says that, well, one, uh, he's not even sure if he really sees a boat, and two, even if he does see a boat, he can't go get it because it is not in German territorial waters. And here I think we might need a bit of an aside about Lake Constance, just to say that it is a big lake at the border of Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. So uh, out in the middle of it are some imaginary lines that denote which part of the lake belongs to which country. But it's not even that the boat appears to be in Swiss waters. What's going on here is that the boat appears to be in the part of the lake that doesn't belong to anybody, which is to say the no man's water or uh, the Niemenswasser, which, hey, that's the name of the story. So this is going to matter. Elmo is pretty annoyed by this explanation, actually, but Jürgen is clearly disturbed by this whole conversation. Uh, disturbed, I think, in fact, by just the very fact of the Niemenswasser, and really not by the idea of like violating international boating law. So what exactly it is that disturbs Jürgen is the question of the story, really. Right. Uh, of course, Elmo thinks that what Jürgen is trying to explain you know, not what's disturbing him, but just the things that Jurgen is trying to explain about the borders is completely legally impossible. The house on Lake Constance that Elmo is staying at is largely inhabited by 
you know, grounds and housekeepers. And it's unusual for one of the masters to stay in this house, as we've seen kind of repeated in the story. You know, Elmo would go there incognito, but for someone to stay there for a long time is unusual. And the fact that Elmo is staying at the house, combined with his depressive behavior and general brooding, have given the servants reason to believe that Elmo's gone a little bit insane. I get the sense, though it's not explicit in the text, that the servants think that Elmo is insane partially because he has the freedom to act in the way that he acts. He has the free, this freedom given to him by his social status, by his class. It would be really hard for me to imagine a story about a peasant or a servant who has no leisure time, who's not really given to leisure in the first place, being so bowled over by a romantic failure that he no longer works and just kind of lounges about. You know, I wonder if Aikman is intentionally examining the way that that class plays into even the possibility for this sort of Sturmundrang or tragic romance story that's being told here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we get into the next scene, of course, we're, we're going to have even more class material here. Aikman, I, I think we have not actually said, Aikman is English, he's, he's British, right? So he lives in a society that has much more class, uh, or at least much more class consciousness than than the society in which you and I have grown up in in the United States, Brandon. So I do suspect that Aikman means all of this class stuff to really jump off the page. And yeah, just thinking historically about really all of these literary movements, Sturm and Drang, uh, Romanticism, I mean, the, you know, the early Romantic poets, uh, English poets, uh, I guess really I'm thinking of the second wave of that in particular of, of Byron and Shelley. I mean, their whole lifestyle is only possible because these people are living atop a pyramid of exploitation. And because of the fact also that in the late 17th, starting in the late 17th, and then throughout the 18th century, going through what uh, we call, often call anyway, the agricultural revolution, or the second agricultural revolution, or sometimes the agrarian revolution, um, or also actually the invention of capitalism, uh, that because of those things happening, uh, that the, the people on top of this pyramid of exploitation, or really, I should say, the top of this pyramid of exploitation has gotten even higher, and it allows for all this extra uh, leisure time for 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 people on top of this pyramid, and I think that is something that Aikman is pointing out here. We're going to be going deep into that in our discussion, so I'm glad you are already thinking of a, a deeper context for for uh, <laughs> this. Though I'm I'm coming at it from the you know English major perspective, which is you know what are the grounds of uh, the possibility of a story even being told, and how is Aikman playing with that? And you know we, we already know that he's doing pastiche. We're doing Sturm und Drang, and we're doing Romanticism, and at this point in the story, we're doing Gothic, right? And that's that's where this section really turns to in terms of genre. We've got a crumbling castle being more or less haunted by a brooding man. And this man, Elmo, is returning to his ancestral home after years away where a tragedy has caused him to flee and then also to return. He's reading lots of theology books and maybe trying to figure out if killing himself is a good idea or if Christ is as really as good and as fulfilling as he's been told his whole life. You know, he's he's seeking these answers in Thomas Alkempis and Jacob Bohm, uh, Jacob Boma, and he's 
also keeping a diary in an old book of magic. I mean, there's this great line here about Elmo's diary. It's this, the death of the heart corrupted the pen into writing a farrago of horrors and insanities. I mean, what a, what a perfect gothic description of uh, the interiority of a madman in, in, as described in this period of uh, literature. Oh, yeah. And there's a whole nother in way to this story, right? You could have told this story from the perspective of someone 100 years later or 50 years later finding this this book in the library and solving you know solving the mystery of what is actually about to happen it's just a uh, this story exists in in the story exists such three dimensionally that uh, I'm in awe of it it's it's really good you know and it's it's wild because all this stuff these reading these crumbling texts and theologians and uh you know, looking for answers in books of magic or adding your touch to the book of magic, whatever. None of that is really getting Elmo to take any material action in the world. What What is going to call Elmo to action here is that he sees this familiar boat in the Niemenswasser and then he learns about the bizarre legal technicality that he then feels he must investigate because it's interesting to him, I guess. It's at least too strange of a thing for him to continue along in his stupor, even though he suspects, or maybe the narrator just indicates to us, that even if Elmo's investigation is successful, uh, him taking action in this moment isn't going to be something that's strong enough to pull him out of his deep depression and malaise. I mean, I think what you're trying to say here, Brandon, is that the inciting incident for the real turn to the horror story that we're getting here, the inciting incident for Elmo's action is that uh, he learned something curiously infuriating about international boating law, which, you know, it's not something that was on my list of story hooks, but actually it's amazing. It is amazing. I wish I, I were as adept with writing about uh, real estate transaction as Aikman <laughs> is with writing about international boating laws. <laughs> All right. Well, Elmo has been having a bit of a think about this Niemenswasser business. And so now he summons the local school teacher. This is a man named Spalt. Uh, Spalt is awesome. He's totally unkempt and appears to be what Elmo thinks of as a confirmed bachelor, though that actually is going to turn out not to be true. Spalt confirms that this no man's water exists. Uh, it actually exists because international law does not apply to the lake, but rather the lake is all governed by treaties, and some part of the lake just never came up in those various negotiations that uh, took place during the Middle Ages and early modernity. What's more, Spalt knows that this part of the lake is where Victor lost his hand all those years ago. Now, he doesn't know this in any scientific sense, of course, since he was not there, but he knows this because the Niemenswasser is where all the strange things happen. Uh, people see treasure ships there, and once there was even a big battle out there, and also there are a lot of fishermen who have gone out there on calm nights and never returned. Also, Spalt knows someone who saw a phantom out there and now is a screaming patient in a madhouse. Now, Elmo does not believe any of this, but Spalt has an interesting and very 19th century romantic explanation for all of this. Spalt believes that in every man, there are two people, uh, two people in a kind of conflict with each other, and one of them uh, is a kind of dreamer. 
Most of us live a type of life in which the dreamer inside of us is killed. And and here I'm just going to read what Spalt says. Men's dreams, their inner truth, are unheimlich also, your highness. If any man examines his inner truth with both eyes wide open, and his inner eye wide open also, he will be overcome with terror at what he finds. That, I have always supposed, is why we hear these stories about a region of our lake. Out there, on the water, in darkness, out of sight, men encounter the image within them. Or so they suppose. It is not to be expected that many will return unscathed. Obviously, we are going to chew on that in the discussion episode, and there's even more to all of this as well. But let's learn one more thing about Spalt, and and then we'll pause, and, and then actually we're nearly done with the story. So we learned that Spalt is not, or at least has not always been, a confirmed bachelor. He was married, but his wife died in childbirth. His daughter survived, but he was not able to care for her, and so he put her in an orphanage, a good one. He wants to be clear, this detail matters a lot to him. And in fact, that daughter is now an adult and in the employ of Elmo's family, uh, presumably here at the castle, though she does not know that Spalt is her father and he wants to keep it that way. And Spalt finishes his story by saying simply that all things must go ill one day, and usually it is one day soon. Yeah, Spalt is living with some sadness, some sorrow in his life. I mean, he had this notion, this bit about two men uh, being two men, and then you have to kill the dreamer in order to attend to your duties as an adult. You know, this is the, the sort of business we not only find in romantic literature, as you point out about the soul and the, the longing of the soul, but it also really verges uh, upon concepts that you'll find in modernism about the fragmented nature of man who was pulled in too many directions uh, by too many allegiances and duties. Uh, Spalt seems to be a very modern man whose who's kind of modernness is hard won. He's also aware of the unconscious, though he doesn't call it that, and it's not called that in the text. You know, the unconscious makes an appearance here, um, and there's this, in this section here, a second correlation that that you read, Glenn, between the lake and the blackness that makes up the unthought, the interiority of man's mind that he can't access. So we're back in kind of Freud and Jung territory here. I want to continue thinking about Spalt here. He's a great character, as you pointed out, Glenn. He is immediately sympathetic. And I think that I, too, would wear unmended trousers if the worst were to happen to my family, as happened to Spaltz. But I I really want to emphasize here and underline that Spaltz was actually married, and he had a child, and he had to give it up and continue working and living because he's a peasant. And just you know, once again, I really get the sense here that Aikman is leaning into these concepts of class, leisure, and despair here in a way uh, that seems so obvious when you read this. And yet I, I can't think of any other examples where I've seen the real contrast between upper and lower classes experiencing tragedies really on a different scale, but of the same sort, at least category, the, the loss of romantic love. For Spalt, it was his family, right? 
but at some point he may have romantically loved his wife. But what Aikman is doing here is looking at these different experiences and showing us the expectations of how these different classes respond and then contrasting them. So they are so different. And I, I, I just don't know if I've ever read another story like this, though I'm sure 19th century literature is, is full of explorations like this. I just can't think of any at this moment. I think your your instinct here is right, Brandon, in, in, in saying that this feels like it's a different way of addressing this issue, the issue of of class, because though, yes, there are lots of examples of this in the 19th century. I'm thinking even just specifically of British and American fiction. In those stories, though, that tends to be front and center. Like that, It's clear that that is what the story is about, where here, Aikman is doing a period piece. I mean, this is historical fiction for Aikman that is about something speculative, something supernatural happening. I mean, it's a horror story in which this is an incidental detail, and it's centrality as a theme, I think, kind of only is in there sneakily. I think it's part of the irony that Aikman is layering into this story that we see kind of right at the beginning with the name Elmo and this then, then his intention to commit suicide, but then also this ironic presentation of uh, different classes and Elmo's response to Spalt thinking about how he's a confirmed bachelor and unkempt when Spalt, uh, we as readers know, Spalt has uh, dealt with a lot of pain in his own life. This is all going to be fodder for our discussion. You know, the, the last thing I want to point out about this section, though, because we're nearly at the end of the story, is that this bit uh, with Spolt explaining the origination of the Niemenswasser is so clearly a kind of overture to an explanation for World War One? That when I read this story the first time, you know, I told myself that if this story doesn't end with Hans Castorp going to war, I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> you know, Hans Castorp is the protagonist of Thomas Mann's uh, Magic Mountain, and I'm happy to say I, I, I'm not too far off with that uh, assessment here with the way that Aikman, like Mann in the Magic Mountain, is maybe not in the same way, but looking at the conditions of society that led up to World War One. So I don't know. We're, we're, we're about to, to get to the end of the story, and, and we, should, we should just do that. But first, it is time to go meet a monster or, uh, or, or something anyway. Obviously, Elmo now has to go out to the Niemenswasser at night. As he is rowing, ice begins to clink against the boat, uh, which is strange because it is not really late enough in the year for that. Then, the boat gets sluggish in the water, also low, though no water has gotten into it. Elmo is very cold, and he loses his grip on the oars, which float away from him and vanish into the darkness. He's terrified, and then she is there. At first, it's just a light, as it was in the tear garden, too. But then he sees her. And uh, again, let's just read Aikman's description here. This lady, too, had large eyes and a large mouth. But now the mouth was open, showing white and pointed teeth, as many teeth as a strange fish. Although her mouth was so very open, this lady smiled not. Elmo thinks again of Elvira here, and now he lays down in the boat and whispers to the spirits of the lake and mountains. 
receive one who is dead already. And now we switch perspectives again. We learn that Elmo's body had been gnashed and gnawed and ripped beyond recognition, and so there was barely anything in his casket when they held his funeral. But we also get a postscript about Victor, and uh, let's just read that, too. And what happened to Victor, some have wondered. From the time of Elmo's presumed death, he seemed steadily to recapture his wits, until, when the World War struck, a generation and a half later, he was deemed fit once more for service of a kind, and, though stationed far behind the lines, had the misfortune to be annihilated with all who were with him, in consequence of a freakish hit by the British artillery. A lucky shot, the British might have called it. Thus, Victor's death, too, was not without distinction. And that's the end of the story. Right. So, (laughs) Victor gets better once Elmo dies, but then he dies an absurd death in World War I. And then also at the end of this section, Aikman points out again the relationship between unrequited love and and the woman of the lake, and then this monstrous death that Elmo suffers that's maybe not unlike being caught in concertina wire, razor wire in no man's land. And so there's a lot of stuff this monster in the lake could represent. And I guess that's what we're going to partially be working towards in our discussion episode. We'll be talking about a bunch of other stuff going on in this story too. So I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Niemann's Wasser. But for this episode, that's going to do it. Once again, I'm Brandon Buda. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Next time, as Brandon has said, we will be back with the discussion episode. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>